Hello, friend, and welcome to the Rise Collective podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Jordan, and I'm honored to facilitate a place to gather and hear stories and teachings from our relations. Thank you for being here. If you find value in these episodes, you can become a patron and get exclusive bonus content at patreon.com slash risecollective. Before we begin, let's call in our benevolent guides. We humbly give thanks for your assistance and support today. May our listeners hear what they need to hear in service of their highest good. And so it is. Hi friends, welcome to the Rise Collective Podcast. I'm Carrie Jordan and this is episode 19. Today, I'm sharing my interview with my dear friend and mentor, Pixie Lighthorse. I'm really excited to share Pixie with you if you don't know her. She's really special to me because she's one of my first teachers. Back when I was in my early 20s, I somehow found Pixie's blog back when (laughs) blogging was really popular. And it was a personal blog. It was called Pink Coyote. And I would check it almost daily to see if she had written anything new. And after about a year of reading her blog, I decided to write to her. And I remember on her website, she had written that she worked with women 30 plus. And at that time, I was a young one in my early 20s. So I asked her if I was too young in my email to take her classes. Um, And of course, she welcomed me into her online course. Soul Lodge is what it was called. And that is what she was teaching at the time. And then when I moved up to Seattle, she had just moved to Oregon. So I got to start attending her in-person circles and our connection has grown from there. And I just want to say an honor that I've learned so much from this woman and uh, I felt emotional sharing that. Um, She supported my becoming in so many ways and it's hard for me to express my gratitude because it feels bottomless. (laughs) But I'm, I'm honored to share this interview with you. So that's who Pixie is to me, and I want to share who she is to the world as well. But first, I want to thank my wonderful patrons, past and present, who keep this show on the air, past, present, and future. I want to thank you. I'm so thankful for your help. Um, We have a goal of reaching 50 patrons by June 15th, which is coming up pretty soon. I ask that if you find value in listening to these episodes, that you become a patron for as little as $3 a month. There are costs associated with producing the show, and every little bit helps. I don't know if you notice the difference in my voice during the interviews versus the intros, but I record these episodes in my very limited spare time as a new mama and I often record the intros and outros late at night so you might notice how soft my voice is during the intros and outros 
it's a really fun project to do this podcast. I get to talk to so many amazing people and I love how I love hearing how the show impacts you. So if you can't support through Patreon, I get that. And I'd be so grateful for you to write a review so that the show can reach more people. Today's Patreon uh, bonus is a giveaway. I'm giving away a copy of Pixie's beautiful and poetic book, Prayers of Honoring. It's a really supportive book that you just might love. (laughs) And you can enter the giveaway on Patreon. Uh, You can find that at patreon.com slash rise collective at the $3 per month level. And I'll pick a winner on May 28th. So all you'll have to do is comment on the post for this episode and share what you've learned from Pixie. Okay, who Pixie is in the world. If you don't know Pixie, I'll share a little bit about her now. Pixie Lighthorse is a prolific author and teacher. Her books are Prayers of Honoring, Prayers of Honoring Voice, Prayers of Honoring Grief, Gold Mining the Shadows, Boundaries and Protection, and I'm sure she has more coming. (laughs) She has created over 50 original online educational courses applying integrative transformative practice, animal and plant studies, and the medicine circle into self-healing soul work. And that's what I was talking about earlier when I mentioned Soul Lodge. Soul Lodge um, was the place where her 50 original online educational courses lived. And um, you can access some of those courses as ebooks now on her website. Pixie writes to create broader applications for internal healing. She teaches practical living skills like boundaries, activating the sacred voice and truth-telling, overcoming fear, gold mining, gold mining the shadows, nurturing the mother wound, and all of that is through the context of Mother Earth. Pixie is also a talented painter, and she's currently working on illustrated book projects. In this episode, we talk about the challenge of healing under imperialism, reframing productivity as becoming generous, wise, and solution-oriented, cultivating the courage to look at how we harm ourselves and change, working with constantly evolving nature and animals as medicine, how leaning into discomfort and relationship can create intimacy, and commitment to supporting the youth and planetary health and wellness. Once again, if you're interested in entering the giveaway for a copy of Pixie's beautiful book, Prayers of Honoring, head over to the Patreon page and you can enter there at the $3 per month level, patreon.com slash rise collective. Welcome Pixie. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Rise Collective podcast. I'm really glad to have you here today because you are one of my first teachers. Well, I think probably my first teacher on my spiritual path and um, you've given me so much inspiration and 
you are, have been so generous with your wisdom with me and with so many of your students and colleagues. So I'm really honored to have you on and glad that I get to share you with everyone else. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. So I'd love to start if you could share a little bit about you, what you're up to now, because you, I really see you as a generalist and you've been an artist, a teacher, you've been writing a lot, you've hosted retreats and where is your work taking you now? What are you focusing on now? Well, I mean, I don't think any of those things have necessarily changed. I do want to be online a lot less and um, unplugged a lot more. Being outside has always been a really huge part of what inspires me to share with others. And also my nervous system is, especially post-menopause, is, um, you know, needy. It requires a lot of downtime, time to think, time to churn things into generosity and, you know, what might be called wisdom. And so I'm looking a lot at the human species and the nervous system. I'm looking a lot at our overarching political systems and influences and trying to, always my brain is trying to, in its sort of Aspergery way, like crack down to what are we going to need to know and do and think and feel to be well. What are we going to need to know and think and do to be well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, being well, being spiritually well was always the um, kind of grounding foundation of my original works in um, working with animals and self-healing and looking through that sort of lens of, um, you know, the active and sort of shamanic um, viewpoint or observation telescope to try to figure out how are we as a species going to not just feel well, because we can medicate ourselves in a number of ways and numb and use all of our coping mechanisms that we've been shown over the last couple of hundred colonial years here in the States, at least, um, we can do that to kind of create the illusion of feeling well, but like, what are we actually needing to do to, to be well as a whole and to, you know, be able to rest, to be able to calm our nervous systems and be at peace, even if for just small portions of our time during our day to really like rejuvenate our energy for, for life, for being in these bodies that we have. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm noticing that this through line of he, he, what can we do to heal ourselves and what can we do to work with nature to ground ourselves and, and support us to be well. And that seems to be a through line throughout your career. <laughs> yeah, all roads lead back to, to being well and being with nature. I really like the way you said work with nature. A lot of folks will say use, um, you know, I'm using the oils or I'm using the plants or, and that is sort of a, you know, a term that represents and 
examples, our top down, you know, sort of unconscious ways of dominating and of taking. And so working with really creates that idea of partnership. You know, we are here with nature. We are here with the trees that are our lungs that create the breath that, you know, inspires so many practitioners and things to create wellness through things, simple things like breath work. Um, so, you know, protecting that is a very fierce passion of mine. How are we going to keep our planetary organs functioning and, you know, human beings are a very thinky species and very technological and um, pretty adaptive in many ways. But we often don't see what is harming us. We still haven't really learned how to practice that sort of all things in moderation um, deal. You know, we catch on to something that's really amazing, like processed food, and we run that all the way down the field, you know, until we go, oh, it's been too much of a good thing. I need to really eat more whole foods. I mean, this is an evolution that, you know, it takes us decades and decades to see the effects of, of things. So mm -hmm. it's commonsensical, I think, to dial back our consumption and dial up our connection. Absolutely. I just want to go back a little bit and say that the working with phrase I learned from you and it is now integrated and it's kind of a habit, but it's kind of funny that you said, I like how you said that because <laughs> I learned it from you. Um, and I think that's important. Um, it's an important lesson that I learned from you because it it's really an example of how important our language is and how we talk about things and how we honor nature and honor life in the ways that we speak. Yeah. And life's diversity and people's diversity. I mean, it's really important to create an inclusive language that's not exclusive and it's very habitual. And I don't love correcting people, um, but that's probably one of those, one of those areas that I, um, have said, work with, work with, <laughs> mm -hmm. not use. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember you um, saying that a lot and sharing that, that teaching. And I, I love that teaching. Mm. Um, so we're talking about planetary health and wellness, and I'd love to go into this topic because um, right before the interview, we were talking about um, your current interests and it seems like supporting the youth is a really big, it, it has a lot of attention from you right now. Yeah, it's definitely taking up a lot of space in my life. I mean, I have a 14 and 11 year old. And so as they start to really become who they are and who they're going to be. I'm, I'm thinking about them. I'm empathizing with them. I refuse to have sort of an attitude of um, kids today, you know, like I refuse to not seek more understanding of them. And we just got so many amazing youth. Social media, one of the benefits of our species adapting to technology is that the youth have a really profound and pronounced voice. 
And so we've got just tons of people that we can learn from, even as someone, you know, who's, I mean, I've probably been a crone since before I had kids, but as I really move into um, inching up here on my 50th year, it's so good to get behind, you know, to, to allocate resources and designate time and energy to listening to what the youth are saying and to try to connect to what their, you know, the, the futurism that they're <clears throat> really wanting, you know, this is their, their world now. And so as we watch some of these dying imperialistic archetypes, you know, just grasping for straws and my, my hope <laughs> is really that, um, that they'll, that will, we will get under them. We who are, uh, you know, have more resources will really get under and uplift and amplify them. Yeah, I hope I have that hope as well. And that intention, especially now having a daughter myself, um, even more of my attention than before is on the next generation and the next seven generations. And um, it's, it's daunting sometimes to yeah. think about that. Yeah, the generational gaps are real and we're not having um, babies in our 20s anymore for those of us who, you know, opted to procreate. We're, we're mm -hmm. having babies in our 30s and so the gap is even a little bit wider um, and our stress, our maternal stress and our parents' stress is much more adulted um, and so they're growing up in a whole new world um, where they're much more informed about adult stress. And so I think it's, it's really interesting to me to see these youth really rise up with as much information as they have and as much technology as they've got, you know, their finger on the pulse of, and they're seeing very clearly and they're getting together and they're not practicing, you know, discrimination or hierarchy. Um, and that just kind of thrills, you know, the pants off me. <laughs> I want to support that. Absolutely. Can you talk about, can you talk a little bit more about um, what I've heard you say in the past is that we can all be our own healer and that we have a responsibility to heal ourselves. And I know that was part of your work for a long time, empowering people to heal themselves. And, and that's also what is in a lot of your you're writing now in your books. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist. Um, I'm, you know, not a not a professional. I mean, if probably at best I could be maybe considered a motivational speaker or something with the work that I've done, just to really try to get people back into their confident and intuitive abilities um, to take responsibility because our our current operating system and as has been since you know this nation was colonized has been to give our power away, you know, to look at our um, officials and law enforcement and presidents and things like that as our sort of saviors and, you know, not being a, a country that's really grounded in um, religion, we have given so much of our power away. We give it to medical doctors and we give it to our professors. And um, in many ways, our parents demanded that we give it to them. 
And so this idea of, of not even reclaiming, but unclaiming what has um, befallen us is liberating. And I think that that's what a lot of people much more educated and savvy than I are talking about right now. It's like, where are we bound up? Where mm. are we trapped? Um, where are we continuing to perpetuate systems that not only don't work, but really cause spiritual illness? Um, so I don't, you know, one of my first clues to wellness was, oh, I can't be spiritually well as long as I continue to give my power away. Like I know my body, I know my children, I know my diet, I know my organs, you know, I know my needs for fresh air. Um, I know my need for space and I intend to fully honor that by not setting up my relationships to be suffocating. Um, I need to honor, you know, my specific ner nervous system's needs. And then that helps me perform better. And I don't mean that in a bulletproof, you know, corporation kind of way of let's be high performance. I mean, that helps me be generous. It helps me be wise. It helps me solve my own problems on a day-to-day -day basis, which I'm really open to um, examining. So, you know, self-healing is, is probably will always be part of, of everything I do because the cornerstone of um, inner wellness is of being able to listen to our body's signals and then respond accordingly. And so that's where that term sort of responsibility comes from. The root etymology is our ability to respond. And so am I going to respond to my body's signals and my minds or, you know, or my mind's fears, which have kind of been colonized in their own ways. Um, it's our responsibility, I think, to cultivate the courage to look at how we're harming ourselves. I mean, one of the most fascinating things about my own self and other humans is that we, we do things that harm ourselves with conscious knowledge that it's harming us and we don't do something different. We don't change. Mm -hmm. And so that always fascinates me because as we were talking about before the interview began, when you observe animal species, typically they're not engaging in things that are not healthy for them. I mean, some <laughs> scavenger species and things like that. I see, I always see ravens, you know, pecking at the McDonald's bags and things like that. Like their, their <laughs> immune systems, and maybe it's, you know, it's not harmful to them, but um, we as humans really opt in for a lot of harmful behaviors and, you know, thinking and um, practices that, that we have the knowledge that it's not serving us and yet we continue to do it. So there's some kind of program, some kind of blueprint that's really running and operating inside of us that we are relatively powerless over until we take our self-healing paths seriously. I agree. I think um, what you said about having the courage to look at where we're where we're not taking care of ourselves. And then I think I would add the courage to claim it or to claim our needs or our desires. I think for me, I, are you familiar with the Enneagram? A tiny bit. I think I'm like a seven. <laughs> okay. Does that sound right? If you are familiar with it? I think so. I'm not the best at typing people, but I, I could, I could, um, see how you could be a seven. <laughs> um, 
there are a few self-forgetting um, types. I think there are two, um, nine, which I am, and I'm not sure if there's one more, but I know two and nine are self-forgetting. And what self-forgetting means is that we have so much attention outside of ourselves that we don't necessarily notice our body's signals like you were talking about. And we may not notice what our body is needing. And so for some of us, it's what we learned and how we were conditioned. Like the, the example I give sometimes is that I used to wait when I had to pee, I would wait so long that I felt like I was going to explode. Mm -hmm. And it's such a small thing. Or sometimes I forget to even eat because I'm not in touch with my body's need to eat. And then when someone puts food in front of me, I gobble, <laughs> gobble it up. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that this is really important to be noticing our body's signals and, and really taking the time and the space and to slow down enough from the frenetic energy that might be around us to be able to tap in and see what we're needing. Yeah. I mean, on courage, I think it takes so much courage to admit that we tend in one direction or another without becoming self-loathing or self-deprecating. That's sort of like the complex system that we're experiencing right now is I will default to my program, you know, my operating system um, when I do have the courage to notice something in myself or when something goes sideways and I'm the one responsible for it, then I'll simply, you know, sit in self-loathing until I have a need to medicate it with some external thing. And then I can kind of like continue getting by. And that just seems like, um, you know, that, that part of the programming needs to become unwired. I mean, if one is self-forgetting, then, you know, sometimes there must be system, you know, new systems in place. Like, oh gosh, yeah, that's what I do. I'm just going to get right back on track here. I'm going to get out of that deep groove that was created by my, you know, developmental wiring, or, you know, you can look at it from a science perspective or from a systemic perspective, but whatever it takes to be able to say, I'm just going to, you know, hop myself with great energy out of this rut and I'm going to now do something different. And, and it's okay if we have to do that a number of times, even over the course of a day or a week. Just do I know how to get out of a rut is so much more important than, gosh dang it, I always get it, find myself in this rut. You know, like it's not a productive conversation to have with ourselves when we are, you know, following in that um, toxic conditioning that finds us spiraling further downward and downward. You know, like it's, it's so much more important to realize that <laughs> I said this to Sky, I know you know my partner. I said to him earlier in our, very early in our relationship, you're going to need to um, become comfortable with the fact that you're going to disappoint me. And he was like, well, I never want to disappoint you. <laughs> and I was like, well, you're going to, um, because I'm very kind of, you know, like not critical but I'm very observational. And if things aren't working for me, I'm going to name it. And then I'm going to seek to kind of resolve it in some way. And so I think that we have such a fear of getting in a rut that we will practice avoidance, you know, mm -hmm. kind of in, on a very professional level so that we don't have to feel 
not enough, less than, you know, all the things that happened in our, um, some of our kind of bizarre development, um, you know, the developmental theories that were reigning when I was a baby in the 1970s and long before and quite a bit after um, have found us, you know, avoiding quite easily and not wanting to um, get into that place where we feel like we're constantly not enough, not doing enough, not rising enough, not honoring our lives enough. So we'll just, you know, one day wake up. And I found this with menopause um, that one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I don't, none of this is serving me. I'm scrapping everything. You know, and we have these soaring divorce rates and, <clears throat> you know, kind of things that get dismantled. But oftentimes we just pick up that, that same pattern again and we repeat it because we haven't trained ourselves to be perpetually uncomfortable and use our inner wisdom to resolve that, knowing that we're going to get uncomfortable again. We want, when we say things, I hear people saying things like, I never want to feel that way again, or I never want to do that to myself again. And I'm like, well, <clears throat> it's been my experience that whenever I say something like that, I set myself up for disaster. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Am I going to be brave enough to look at it again? Or am I going to have to avoid it because I've set myself up to never want to believe that I could possibly make that mistake again? Yeah, I think um, as you're talking about discomfort and uh, our, our commitment, seeming commitment to not ever getting uncomfortable, it, it, I think it holds us back in some ways. And I... Uh, I have a friend who constantly teaches me this. You also know her. Um, she's a truth teller, BS caller, and she is not afraid to tell, to get uncomfortable with me and, or have me feel uncomfortable. Um, and I find that on the other side of that discomfort, if I lean into it enough and if I have enough curiosity about, about the discomfort and enough curiosity about the person that I'm being relational with, on the other side is so much liberation. Like you were yeah, talking about. Yeah, and intimacy. Uh, yes, intimacy. <clears throat> Absolutely. Vulnerability and... I, I end up learning so much about myself and just feeling such a deeper, more resilient connection with the person that it happens with. Yeah. Often. I think, I think we have a fear of so many things, not just fear, but like debilitating terror of making mistakes, of feeling like a failure, of feeling pain, you know, making mistakes sometimes leads to to tension inside of ourselves and that leads to pain. And so, you know, we're going to try to avoid that. We might never want to be in a relationship again after our divorce because we're so afraid of feeling emotionally abandoned or something like that. So we, we, we don't open ourselves to the experience of life moving on. We just kind of make our, paint ourselves into these smaller and smaller corners. And that's just really dangerous for a life, you know, like life isn't over. Um, because you made a critical mistake. Um, it can be, it can be beginning at that time. Our, I mean, our, our fears, our terrors of death and our handling and medicalization of death is one of the 
one of the things that comes to mind. You know, we've got to create this illusion of peacefulness and safety, but underneath we're churning with discomfort and it, we've just gotten very good at burying it. Yeah, I think for me, death has, death has had a lot of my attention lately, especially with current events. Um, it, it feels a lot closer than it has before. And mm -hmm. so I've been really exploring, exploring that. And what I've learned is that when I get in touch with how I feel about death, I can get in touch really deeply with my love of life and my loved ones. Yeah. With life itself. I mean, mm -hmm. death and life are, are, you know, very close siblings. And so I think the more we're able to think about plan for speak openly about our wishes, um, you know, honor our deaths, knowing that we're marching toward it from the moment we're born in some way, then we we come alive, you know? I mean, what? how many people have lost a loved one or beat cancer or something like that and suddenly got a new lease on life? Like that, that is the catalyst that creates so much shift into goodness, into forgiveness, into beauty, into truth, into being helpful, into giving all your possessions away, you know, to serve mm -hmm. someone else or to minimize the distractions and noise that we accumulate. Yeah, there seems to be a big accumulation of distractions and noise <laughs> in, in this um, imperialism, as you were calling it. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's one of the tools. It's a tool of oppression. <laughs> yes, for sure. I also, I wanted to underline, I wanted to, uh, I made a note here about um, what you had said earlier. I'm not sure if you used the word productive. Um, maybe you, you used the word functional, but you were talking about um, listening to the body signals to create inner wellness. And when you do that, it helps you function better. It helps you be more productive. I'm pretty sure you didn't use that word. Do you remember what word? I did. Yeah. Really productive to me is, is so well used, not in terms of our productivity and moving along with the machine, but in terms of having productive conversations with each other, are we getting somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, are we, are we, are we uplifting ourselves um, in a really open and transparent way? Or are we denying, depressing, repressing, um, so a productive conversation with oneself might sound like, oh gosh, I made a mistake. I'm the worst person in the world. You know, we're talking mm -hmm. about toxic shame. That's not a productive conversation to be in shame. Um, it's much more productive to experience what in the English language might be called guilt, which is to say, ooh, I made a mistake. I want to make it right. Um, you know, that's a productive conversation. What do I need to do here? You know, I've just screwed up or I just misspoke or I just excluded someone or something, you know, how do I put that back on? How do I jump up out of this rut? You know, we got to have life energy for that. Mm -hmm. And I just don't, I don't think that we have many of us or at, many of us at times don't have the life energy or the courage to jump up out of that, that deeply programmed groove um, to create a more productive scenario. So, you know, right use of the word productive or the concept of productive is super important to me as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I like I like this frame of 
being productive. And I think what you said is that it, it, resourcing yourself in those ways of taking care of yourself helps you to be generous and wise and solutions oriented. And when I think of it in this frame, um, it seems like planetary health and our own wellness is really dependent on us being finding our generosity and, and being resourced in those ways of being wise and solution oriented. So I'm connecting these dots of how important nervous system wellness and general uh, mental wellness and spiritual wellness are so integral to healing not only ourselves, but how we relate to the world and how we support the planet. Yeah. It's really, I think it's really important to note that and just to <clears throat> kind of link that back into nature. I mean, I have, um, I live here. Um, I co-founded a um, holistic beef ranch, which I know is quite controversial with many people in the vegetarian and vegan realms of which I existed for 11 years prior to this. Um, when I started to understand the nature of soil science and the symbiotic relationship between um, herd animals and ruminants and hoofed animals and soil and manure and the, you know, the health of trees in the juniper forest that I live in, um, I started to really feel like I was on track with understanding how diverse species and microorganisms and soil is a huge passion of mine. But I, I planted four apple trees in my, um, in my front yard when I moved here. And I have one left. All the others died. They had, you know, deer rubbing their antlers against them and bugs and beetles and too much water and things like that. And so I think about, I think about our kind of like our taproot a lot and how this year, as I was starting to make vegetable starts and things, and my partner was like, well, I, you know, I want to make sure we get the water on um, all your veggies. And I said, you know what, I'm not going to spoil my garden on water this year. I want them to be resilient. I want them to reseed themselves. I want them to send a deep taproot down into the water sources that they need, because we've lost three out of four trees by nursing and over nurturing them and not making them work a little bit for their nutrients and their nourishment. And so my point in that, Carrie, is to say that the system that we, that we live in spoils some in a way, if you want to use that water metaphor, and it causes others to kind of fend for themselves. And if you ever go out into a forest, you'll see that a forest knows how to maintain itself. And not if it's left completely alone. It needs wildlife. It needs diverse species in there. It can't just be nature conservancy and, you know, left completely untouched. Soil, the, you know, when you've had human contact with an area, you can't just abandon it and expect it to um, heal itself. It needs, you know, ruminant activity. It needs wildlife on it. If we've decimated all the wildlife, it, it will need us to bring something in. And, and for us to be beneficial and activated around that rather than abandoning or neglectful and saying, well, you know, we've, we've messed this up. Now we're just going to leave it alone and let it kind of reclaim itself. Mm -hmm. um, my, my point I think is that we, when we want to 
find a new system, when we're seeking a different blueprint to heal ourselves, to change ourselves, to accept ourselves as a species, there's, there's a, an intense crisis of, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates said this, there's an intense crisis of low self-worth. Many humans, I think, at the root of their being know that they're destroying their home. And so planetary health and planetary consciousness is going to take some sort of radical creativity and imagination to understand its needs. And we humans are a part of that. We're sort of a little microcosm of what's playing out in our outer world. And so when we see um, devastation of our external world that we live in, we must then dig inside and ask, how am I devastating my own system? How am I participating in um, an ecology, a body ecology that is not sustainable? Yes, looking at ourselves and finding the ways that we are devastating our own systems, which is mirrored in the outer world. I'm, as you're talking about this, I'm, I'm just reminded of your work with animal medicine and um, how you were talking about uh, earlier before we got on this, the Zoom, the interview, um, you were talking about looking at animals for the ways that they're evolving mm -hmm. as a species right under of, our nose. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also that they don't have technology. So how can they inspire the ways that we take care of ourselves and the ways that we evolve in these changing times and the, the changes that the earth is undergoing? Can you riff on that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that the beauty in observing animals and seeing them as a another microcosm, another ecological body that's exampled, you know, in um, relationship with Earth can tell us a lot about our human animal systems. And, you know, I, I'm not a biologist, so I can't, I can only comment on the species that I've observed and how they behave and how they thrive and or, you know, what, what invaders um, affect them. But just to generalize, just to play in the field of, you know, animal species of which there are many millions um, and the human species. One thing that I observe that's most helpful is that they are in charge of their own nervous systems, like their instincts and their animal nature is very technological. It's extremely intelligent. And I mean, probably at home, one thing we can, we can watch is, for example, if you try to pet your cat and your cat doesn't want to be pet for whatever reason, reasons of their own that may all, always remain mysterious to us, they might kind of lower their spine, shrink away, and then go get in the sunny spot in a chair and groom themselves. Like there's something happening for that animal that it is asking for what it wants. It's not showing up in loyalty to its owner. Um, you know, it's, it's shaking off an experience that is unwanted and it's going over and taking care of itself. I mean, I'm standing at my window right now, looking out at about 60 cows, um, you know, grazing on our upper pasture and they were just moved two days ago. 
So we do everything on horseback here. We don't run them around or stress them in any way. So it's an extremely uh, like almost excruciatingly slow process to, you know, get them on the road and ask the neighbors not to drive on it for a while and just very slowly like shepherd them up into the other field where they're obviously very happy because there's a lot of green grass up here, but they, you can start to watch an animal, even, even a cow, which is a food animal that we really take for granted. You know, those of us who enjoy um, eating out and eating burgers and things like that, but you can watch them go from, oh my gosh, what the heck is happening here? Like you can see their nervous system rise up a little bit. And then once they get to where they're going and they settle in and they start feeling safe again, they will lick each other. They will lay down. They'll lick themselves. Their nose, noses get really wet. Um, you know, they, they have gone from what is, you know, very low impact and very low stress here on this ranch comparatively to when animals are transported and moved, you know, for mass food reasons out in the, you know, in the bigger systems. Um, but I can, we witness them wondering, you know, they're a little bit wide-eyed, they're a little bit scared, they don't feel safe, but they recover really quickly. And so one of my sort of favorite recitations from that kind of came as a download through nature is, you know, keep it real, right? Feel, feel what there is to feel and then recover quickly. As soon as we're safe again, then, you know, settle down, let our systems rehydrate us and, you know, rejuvenate and everything's okay now. And as humans, we, we're perpetuating stress. Uh, we're allowing our minds to go round and round. Our memories store in our brains in a certain way that, you know, we're many, many, many people in my estimation are experiencing um, CPTSD or PTSD-like symptoms. We're, our memories are almost serving as flashbacks. And um, so it's very difficult for us to recover um, and, you know, essentially like a dog will shake off uh, an experience or an animal will, you know, jump, a bird will jump up into a treetop and kind of groom its feathers and, and look around and assess the situation. So there's all kinds of opportunities, domestic and wild, that allow us to go, oh, they are not sustaining stress. And we humans are. You know, we have restlessness, we have sleeplessness, we are not adapting to this COVID situation very well. We don't know what to do with ourselves when we're just alone or just with our nuclear family. Um, and so, you know, I feel obviously in a unique situation where I get to look out my window and observe deer and hawks and wildlife and bovine and things like that. But, you know, it's not that difficult for us to see whatever animals are in our region, pigeons on a balcony is what I have had when I lived in Los Angeles for over a decade and watching their nesting habits and listening to their sounds and, you know, understanding their mating habits and things like that was always very inspirational um, as I had my own kind of interior and exterior human experience. Mm. Yeah, they're teachers for sure. Mm -hmm. And all mm -hmm. animals can be teachers, not just the, you know, very powerful apex predators of, of tigers and, um, you know, big moose and bull and things like that. Like we have this, um, this projection of, um, of power, power and, um, you know, hierarchy. We, we want to relate to an animal that has, 
you know, great qualities that we can observe, predatory qualities. And so I think if you're going to try to indigenize your thoughts in that way and relate to the natural world um, as a human and spiritual experience, you know, got to practice diversity and inclusion there too. Um, a mosquito is just as much a teacher as, um, as a, you know, a white buffalo. <laughs> I have a hard time with that one, but yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, I do too. But you know, it's it, to me, it's true. Like I can't, we, I think that we can't exclude the things that aren't palatable or cause us discomfort or, you know, make us look at parts of ourselves that are in the mosquito example, you know, parasitic or, mm -hmm. um, you know, creating inflammation. So yeah, or viral. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I, um, I think I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about prayer because I know that this is such a big piece of your writing and your practice. Um, and I can ask you a more specific question if that's helpful, but is there anything that's coming to mind that you'd like to share about prayer? Well, I think that it might be useful for your listeners to just hear that I, in my observations, I have understood and growing up sort of in like the scrapped relics of oppressive Baptist Christianity, my indigenous ancestors were assimilated in boarding schools and Christianized and hair, haircut and all of that. And even on my non-indigenous um, lineage, they're, they're, was a version of, you know, very patriarchal um, religion that came through. And my parents practiced neither of those, but they didn't seem to be able to um, get out from under the toxic shame and conditioning and things like that. So prayer, when I first started writing prayers of honoring, it helped a lot of people because they were healing. They had, they had turned away from prayer because it represented something that was very painful to them. Um, just mm -hmm. in the way that we turn away from many practices because they've, they've left a sour taste in our mouths. And so, you know, li becoming liberated from uh, oppressive religious structures doesn't mean that we have to, um, for me anyway, doesn't mean that we have to let go of our dialogue with the divine or that we need to, um, you know, give up decades of our lives or years of our lives in, in, you know, indulging in or having that sweet kind of conversation with some power greater than ourselves. I mean, scientists for hundreds and, you know, thousands of years have been looking to the cosmos, looking to the stars, you know, working with their, their creativity. I think Einstein used to call God um, the awe of the universe. And so, you know, just with that, you know, just with speaking about um, that web that connects us all, there is something, everyone has witnessed some kind of miracle or some kind of interesting synchronicity in their lives. And when you have come to a path, which I'm assuming you're um, hopefully not erroneously that your listeners have arrived at, then there is a desire to connect. And so how do people, humans connect? We connect through talking and through dialogue and through conversation and listening mm -hmm. and, you know, being present, being still. And prayer has, you know, in, in some of its forms has been very helpful to humans um, in, in helping them reset their nervous systems and um, regulate or 
um, co-regulate with each other. You know, we seem to historically like to gather around these things and congregate. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, we like to experience the truth and beauty of our world as we know it together and in solitude. And we like to share those findings. And that is, you know, that's part of the spiritual constellation that we're kind of creating here. Like, how do I do that? Oh, when I move my body, when I work in the garden, when I witness animals, when I see my children loving on each other. Um, you know, the human experience isn't separate from, um, from a spiritual experience. We're not spiritual beings having a human experience. We're both all at once. And so, you know, writing books and inviting people to, to pray is to invite them to liberate themselves from whatever toxic systems have kept them from dialoguing with the divine or being with the divine in their way. And, um, you know, opening that blueprint, expanding that template so that more things are possible. I think it's a very um, productive <laughs> um, conversation that we can have. And it's not to lead to enlightenment, you know, it's not to transcend the human experience for me anyway. Um, it's to keep it real and recover quickly. You know, having a dialogue with, with a source that's wiser than me, that's inside of me too. It's a part of me and it's a part of all of our world is um, it helps me. And it helps others. And so spiritual trauma and religious trauma have, um, I have healed their imprint by creating my own productive dialogue with a, with the, you know, the big web. I like this, this connection you're making between kind of the colonialized spirituality of um and the trauma that so many uh ancestors and people today have experienced around the divine mm -hmm. it seems like a really empowering way to like we were saying earlier just a, a way to take your power back and a, a way mm -hmm. to liberate yourself is to really claim um to claim our our own uh connection with mm -hmm. the divine and speak to that it's helpful to congregate around shared spiritual ideas and values. And yet mm -hmm. when we put um, a mediator between us and the divine, then once again, we, you know, we get preached to, or we um, get told how we're supposed to live our daily lives and things. And that, that's not a spiritual experience to me. That's, um, that's a political experience to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. We all have our own, our own versions of truth and our own versions of what it looks like to live a spiritual uh, daily life and to be told what that looks like is uh, it's a form of control, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how it's I another, perceive it. Another tool of oppression. Mm -hmm. Not, not liberating. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, this feels like a good place to me to, to wrap up. What do you think? 
I think we could just go on talking as we have for years, you know, on, <laughs> yeah. and, on and on. <laughs> and that's how it yeah. should be, you know, it, it shouldn't have a beginning and an end um, necessarily. But I'm really curious as to what kinds of conversations your listeners might want to have after, you know, kind of eavesdropping on the kind of conversation that you and I and other um, close ones have on the regular, you know diving deep and being able to talk about it in an expansive way, noticing what comes up for us that creates discomfort. You know, that's always going to be a place that we can apply a healing balm mm. to. And what does that look like for us as individuals? It's an, it's going to be a forever conversation and I'm definitely all in. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you listener want to share what you're getting with Pixie. She's pretty active on Instagram. Um, and Pixie, do you want to share where people can find you? Yep. Um, so my books are sold in PDF downloadable form um, at my website, pixielighthorse.com. It can also be found, they can also be found on the um, on the internet around it, many different booksellers and local retailers, and some of them have gone online during this period, as well as at Amazon. Um, I do a free prayer and meditation, which really should be called prayer and visualization, because I do that about every other Friday. And if you subscribe to my newsletter um, at my website, there's a little pop-up opt-in, then you can jump in there and get notifications for when that's happening. And um, and yeah, it's just sort of intuitive, very soft, sweet, safe space to, to go, you know, indulge your imagination for 45 minutes or so and, um, and connect and share some, you know, liberating experiences. <laughs> Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for sharing so generously what you're learning and what you're healing. And I look forward to talking soon. Thanks, Carrie. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you got value out of it, I would love it if you would share the podcast with your friends and family. I hope that this interview inspired you. I'll put any relevant links in the show notes on therisecollective.org. You can find past episodes, my weekly blog, and products for sale at therisecollective.org. While you're there, download the guide to feminine goal setting and learn how to work in harmony with folk magic and the rhythms of the earth. Hundreds of women have used this method to weave magic into their lives. It's a simple guide and it'll help you move forward towards your soul's purpose. Today for, on Patreon, we have a giveaway. I'm giving away a copy of Pixie's beautiful and poetic book, Prayers of Honoring. And I'm going to pick a winner on May 28th. So you can enter the giveaway to win the book on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash risecollective at the $3 per month level. And if you love the show, please consider supporting its production at patreon.com slash risecollective. I can't do this alone. There are costs associated with the podcast like hosting and um I would love to get a VA to make this more sustainable for me because as I said in the intro, I'm doing a lot of this late at night and it 
would probably be better for my health to be sleeping. Um, So if you, like me, believe that the voices of our elders need a platform to reach more people, please become a patron. It's so worth your while as you'll get lots of giveaways. Every episode, I do my best to provide a giveaway or a bonus, and I provide giveaways from podcast guests, and um, I also provide guided meditations, bonus interviews, lots of curated classes and things that um, from around the web that are resource guides and resources that are related to the podcast and so much more. You can get all of this at the $3 per month level. And finally, hit that little subscribe button in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. I so appreciate reviews and um, I'd love for the show to reach more people so that this wisdom can be disseminated (laughs) to the masses. So thank you again to my wonderful past, present, and future patrons and thanks for listening. I look forward to next time.